In our gospel reading this morning, we hear Jesus drawing us in with a description of the end of days, that time when he will come again in power and in glory. It is a time that will always be shrouded in mystery beyond the veil of what we can fully grasp, control, and explain for ourselves. Different passages of scripture challenge us with chaotic visions of suffering, turmoil, natural disasters, and then that stark contrast of the reign of peace and light in our Savior coming to us on the clouds. But even as Jesus tells us about this day, he's also telling us that we don't know a thing about it. There is no human expert who's lurking around to explain to us, it will be exactly like this. Make sure to bring a water bottle because you're going to get thirsty. Wear a poncho, you will get wet. No. No one knows. Not even God's angels. Not even Jesus himself when he was bound to earth. Just God the Father Almighty. Despite the tumult and the confusion, We have put our hearts and our lives in Jesus' hands. He is our hope and our salvation. We look forward to that day when Jesus reigns, but what do we do in the meantime? Is the purpose of our lives just to wait around for Jesus to arrive? In 2002, I studied abroad in Germany and our program was headquartered in Munich. Early on, before we started our classes, the professors informed us that we would be visiting Dachau. Now, if you've you've never been to Munich, I can tell you that it is a remarkable city, gorgeous, history, and it has an amazing subway. It's clean, it's well-organized, easy to get around, even if you don't speak German, and the trains actually run on time which always felt like a miracle. If the professor had not planned our trip, I might never have noticed that there, in the middle of the S2, the green line of the subway, there was a stop for Dachau. And it felt so strange to buy a train ticket to go to Dachau on purpose. Dachau itself is actually a bustling little suburb of Munich. People live and work and pray there which seems unbelievable. When our group boarded the train car, you could see in an instant who was going to Dachau and why. Those solemn, tight faces anticipating great sadness sat right next to the distractible, comfortable people who were just on their way home. The camp itself was mostly destroyed in the years after the war, but a few of the buildings were preserved. As we walked from the train to the camp, the fall air was crisp and cool. The sky was a bit gray, which seemed quite fitting, but sometimes the sun came out anyway. Leaves rustled, the occasional bird sang, and none of it felt real. The only way I could ever think to describe the whole experience of the place was with a reference to The Shining. Yes, that shining. (laughs) The little boy, Danny, asked the hotel's head chef if he's scared of the hotel. The chef says that he isn't, but Danny asks him if there's something bad there. 
The chef says, well, you know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Say like if someone burns toast. Well, maybe things that happen leave other kinds of traces behind. I think a lot of things happened right here in this hotel over the years, and not all of them was good. Being at the camp was like sensing the burnt toast of the place. All of the misery and sorrow seemed to accumulate, and it hit me in waves as we walked along. The trace of all that evil clung to the ground and urged you to notice, not because the evil was all-powerful, but because its stain was still so noticeable. When I think about those few hours that I visited that camp, it feels like an encounter with the holy. It was like so much evil was done in that place that the veil had become thinner and God chose to shine through all the more. It was like the pain that I could feel was amplified by the pain that God felt when so many did so much wrong day after day after day. And it would be reassuring if we could say that when the Nazis rose to power, the Christians immediately recognized the great evil and resisted its temptation. But we know that's not how it happened. As the Nazis became more powerful, one-fourth to one-third of the 40 million Protestants in Germany were members of the German Christian movement. They were pro-Nazi Christians. They believed in the racist ideals. They called on the churches to remove the Old Testament from the Bible and even many of Paul's letters. They proclaimed Jesus to be an Aryan hero, and they wanted the church to be subject to Nazi control. They criticized traditional Christianity's focus on Jesus' birth, life, suffering, sacrifice, and otherworldly redemption. They called it passive and negative. The Aryan Jesus was a fighter and was linked to the strength of German blood and unity. One-third of 40 million Protestants, that's 13.3 million so-called Christians, and yes, there were Christians who rose up against this terrifying, toxic theology. Christians who discerned Christ's lordship over all, not favoring one nation's blood over others. They formed the confessing church and were true heroes of our history. But historians estimate there may have only been about 3,000 of them. And so that means that the dramatic majority of Christians during Hitler's rule chose not to take a side. The bulk of people who claimed to follow Christ either trusted in Hitler as Lord, or they thought that their holy calling meant waiting for God to sort things out if they even saw a problem at all. In Advent, we carve time out of the year to remember that we are waiting to remember the hopeful anticipation of Jesus' day of glory. The passage from Mark tells us, beware, keep alert, because if we are waiting while worshiping a false Lord, we are really not being aware. 
If our waiting means that we ignore the struggles and injustices of our time, then we are not keeping awake. Because Advent preparation is not about patient, quiet waiting with our hands folded in our laps. Now, the reading from 1 Thessalonians goes into this a little bit. It's thought to be the earliest letter by Paul that is in our Bible. Paul has already been busy with his work planning churches and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone he can find. And Paul has a blessing for all of these new Christians. He says, May the Lord strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. So then, what does it take to make it to the coming of our Lord Jesus? Paul says, the blessing of holiness. In Greek and in Hebrew, holy means set apart and sacred. It means different from the world, Because more and more, the believer shares a likeness with the Lord. Not just different, off by ourselves, set apart in a corner, but shining with the difference that Jesus makes smack dab in the middle of the world and everything that is happening. It is not enough just to wait. Our true preparation is to pursue the blessing of holiness, which the church calls sanctification. And holiness is not just a quiet space, a reverent glance, a prayerful moment, and worshipful dedication. In Leviticus, God spoke to Moses to tell the people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You know, a small challenge for the people. But immediately in the very next sentence, the instructions for how to be holy is very familiar to us. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath. Do not make and worship idols. Do not steal. Pursue justice. Do not profit by the blood of your neighbor. We can see all of this reflected in the life of Jesus. He did not just worship and otherwise go about his business. He did not just confront unjust and sinful people, but neglect prayer and meditation. Conforming to Christ, becoming more and more holy, demands action and commitment. To be more holy, we must be prepared to give everything over to God. The church under Hitler was waiting, but most were not waiting in holiness. And the scars of their inaction still dot the European landscape. Through the horrors of war, persecution, and bloodshed, God heard the cries of those who suffered, and God rose up heroes to conquer Nazi control. It was God's intervention that stopped Hitler, that liberated the camps, and that was miraculous. But the church's disorder and cowardice That is our great shame. God's holiness overcame those Christians' unwillingness to be truly awake. And so, holy God, in this season of Advent, may we have the courage to pursue the blessing of holiness. May our hearts be laid open so that the likeness of Christ grows stronger within us day by day. 
And may we be aware and beware of false idols, alert for our moments to do justice, and awake so that we can meet you when you come home to remake this world. Amen.